Greetings, everyone. It has been a little while. Gosh, almost a year since the last episode. I I am sorry. Things have gotten busy, busy in the travel world, been guiding and planning all sorts of expeditions, photo trips, you name it. So I'm really happy to be back here, uh, partly on my own right, partly due by popular demand. Thank you guys for reaching out and insisting on some more episodes. No, I'm, I'm happy to do it. I'm actually sitting in Mexico City right now about to guide a monarch butterfly adventure and had a few minutes and I was thinking about bracketing. So, you know, it's it's one of these terms. We'll talk about this in a second, but um, I, I wanted to kick back with some new terminology and some new ideas and hopefully get you to be more versed, more well-rounded photographer. Let's let the education begin. Welcome to the Wild Photographer, folks. Season three. about bracketing, it's one of those things that probably intimidates most people, especially if you're sort of anywhere in the beginner phase of photography. It sounds complicated. You read some tutorials, you watch some videos, and it kind of is complicated, complicated, um, if I can say that. And then also, you know, the processing. You don't just take it and magic doesn't just happen once you bracket your photos. You're actually getting data that then you manipulate, you use it somehow. So honestly, like 70% of the work is still yet to be done. So you can bracket perfectly, but you still got to do something with that bracketing. So this episode is really designed to get you to understand what is bracketing. There's actually two different types. And then how do you use it? And honestly, the biggest thing you're going to take away from this is whether you even feel like you need to dabble in it or not. The idea is that if you understand it, you will best know whether you even need to employ these tactics. So the first more traditional type of bracketing is exposure bracketing. And this, uh, I should say both of these things, exposure and then soon to be what I explained, white balance bracketing. Most of this has sort of roots back to the film era. Digital stuff, yeah, it still has a purpose, absolutely, because data is data and you, you want more information in your photos and in your, in your files that you save. But Ultimately, it's just it's not as critical. Um, it probably would not have been invented if we started in a digital platform without having this very analog film. But you know, I'm kind of getting away from the main topic here. So let me go back to it. Basically, bracketing is a thing that existed in the film days or originated in the film days, and exposure bracketing is the most original. It's the most commonly perceived. It's probably the thing that when people say, hey, make sure you bracket your shot, that's what most people are thinking of and doing. So when you bracket, let's get down to brass tacks. What it is, is you are essentially taking three, maybe even five photos. Um, You're bracketing in your camera's menu system. So it automates. It automatically takes three to five photos. You program all this in. And the idea is you take one, let's go back to the three photo example. You take one photo overexposed, one photo underexposed, and then one photo evenly exposed. And you do so in very quick succession. Um, Most of the time people are having their camera on a tripod, so the three photos are really identical. They're the exact same photo, the composition, the, uh, you know, nothing changes except for the lighting, really. And you take them so quickly, like a split second from one another, that even the environmental lighting, what the sun is doing, what the clouds are doing, changes very, very little. The only thing that changes is how your camera perceives and ultimately downloads or ultimately records the light in that photo. So that's that's exposure bracketing. Like I said, most of the time it's three. You can go to five and there are certain merits if you ultimately do process these things. And we'll talk about the processing and what you might want to do with it later. But again, traditional bracketing is an exposure term. And you're basically hedging your bets to see, you know, to ensure that you are getting the right exposure. 
Think of yourself, you know, back in film days. Maybe you started with a film camera, but if you haven't, you know, back in film, you do not get results from that shot for days, if not weeks. If you're on a big photo expedition, it, it might be truly weeks and weeks before you even see any results. So, you know, you are you might be in this perfect position on the Masai Mara of Kenya with an extraordinary sunset. You got a giraffe in the distance, silhouetted. And you say, okay, I better get the perfect shot. And I don't care if I waste three or five photos of this film. I'm going to bracket it. Bracketing is honestly synonymous with hedging. You're just hedging your shots. You're hedging your bets. You're bracketing your shots. It's an exposure term. So the other kind of bracketing is a little bit, honestly, I didn't even really know about this because I, I see no purpose for it in the digital realm. But again, going back to the film era is bracketing for white balance. So if you haven't listened to my white balance episode, I definitely recommend you do so. White balance is in short, the way your color perceives pure white, which has a huge effect on what color your photos take on. Um, I'm not gonna go into too much more detail there, but you you know think about those photos you see of people around a table blowing out a birthday cake indoors in a photo, and it just turns out really, really, really yellow or when the flash fires, everything looks really weird and steely blue, like it's so white it almost looks kind of blue. Those are all white balance settings and it's really just the color your photo takes on. The reason this is not as important, if important at all, in the digital era is we have just unprecedented, unparalleled ways to change your white balance in post, in Photoshop, in Lightroom. So back in the day, once again, you kind of have one shot. You're not going to see these photos for days, maybe even weeks. And, you know, white balance was most often set via filters. So if you think of, or not think of, but if, if you remember hearing terms like a warming filter or a cooling filter, these are essentially adaptations to nailing your camera's white balance. So when you screw on a little filter that has a yellow tint, that might be a cloudy white balance, or screw on a filter with a a blue tint that's a daylight white balance, basically it's trying to, uh, once again, compensate or hedge for what's going on in the environment. Maybe there's a lot of yellow light coming through a big, bright orange sun. Um, You're going to hedge that overly yellow tone by putting on a blue cooling filter. We call that a daylight filter. And you might actually recognize this from your cameras, your now digital camera's white balance setting. And vice versa, if it's a real blue color coming through the clouds or at night and you actually don't want that blue color, sometimes the color is just spectacular. But if you don't want that color, you can you can hedge it, you can compensate for it with screwing on a warming filter. It's a little bit yellow. It makes it warmer, kind of that yellowish, almost orangish tone. That's the spectrum of white balance, kind of a yellow to a blue. Now, the reason you'd want to hedge those bets even further when you're taking your shots is you might want to uh, have your camera, some cameras even back in the film day would be able to inject a white balance that would help compensate for the photo without screwing on those filters. So basically you can hedge your bets Take a photo that's a cool, a cool, a cool effect, like a blue, something even, which is sort, you know, right in the middle, and then something yellow as a warm. And that again, it's bracketing your white balance. Honestly, just spoiler alert: I see no purpose for this in today's modern era. When I think of bracketing, I am not thinking of white balance. You ask nine out of ten pro photographers out there; they're probably not thinking about bracketing white balance ever. But there still is a place for bracketing exposure, and I'll tell you exactly how that is right now. So bracketing exposure still has 
a pretty good use if you are really, really pressed to nail the shot. So as you probably know, you go into Photoshop, you go into Lightroom, you can you can tinker with your exposure pretty easily. And remember, we're only talking about exposure here. So that one exposure slider, you can go left, you can go right, you can underexpose, you can overexpose, and you can go you know a stop or two in each direction, and it preserves a lot of the integrity of the photo. Now, if you are a professional photographer and you're photographing a engaged couple at sunset or just you know under some special situation where you can't repeat that setup and you need to nail the light that light might be challenging in its own right bracketing the photo is a way to ensure you have a few other copies in case your camera or you just botch the first shot the even shot sometimes cameras do funky things based on how you expose and your metering settings so you know when it really really counts and when lighting is a little bit more challenging than the norm Bracketing your photos can really help you. So when you're looking at your photos on your computer, you um, you know you start with even and say, "Ooh, God, I really underexposed that. I cannot get the color out of their outfit. You know, I can't bring the the nice light colors of the red or the of the charcoal or whatever out of the the clothes. Um, I need to start with a." brighter exposure. Um, so it's like a huge safety nut to have that if you take three shots. Now, that's three more shots that take up three times of memory and three more shots you got to deal with in the computer. So you don't really want to use it unless it is a real special scenario. Again, professional photographers that are getting paid money for a one-time event, a wedding or an engagement shoot, um, who knows, it's probably worth having that extra bit of workflow. Now, for most nature and wildlife and travel and landscape photographers, you kind of have the same thing where you have a very special natural phenomenon. You might have an extraordinary sunrise or sunset and, you know, you have no guarantee you're ever going to see that ever again, right? So bracketing might help a little bit in terms of getting you different schemes, different forms of that data. We're talking about like the pixels and the color and the light as just raw data in your shot. So yeah, you're hedging your bets there. But actually more often in the digital era, especially with nature photography, we're talking about using these bracketed photos in what's known as HDR, high dynamic range photography. A lot of people might be familiar with HDR photography because all smartphones now have a little toggle that you can turn it on and off. It's basically a light version of what I'm about to explain. So bracketing for HDR still has a a lot of use. HDR was extraordinarily popular about 10, 15 years ago, and it provides this really nice sort of ethereal look to photos. I think it kind of got overused and it's seen it's 15 minutes in the sun and people are not really using HDR too, too much anymore. We're actually now seeing a little bit more in professional world of like real estate photography when people are photographing indoors, but they also want the beautiful windows and like whatever trees are outside. So you have this extraordinary exposure, this very, very even exposure. But as you can see where I'm going with this, when you have an under even and overexposure all in three, you actually have this really cool ability to put it in a software program like Photoshop, like Lightroom, and automatically the computer software will merge the light and dark and even tones to create what it thinks is the most dynamic range photo. The reason this is important is that our eyes often perceive way more dynamic range, way more lights and darks in a single scene than a camera can perceive. A camera is a digital instrument, so it can't really perceive all the lights and darks that our eyes can. So the original intention of HDR is to actually make the photo look more natural, more like what our eyes see. It's pretty easy to go overboard. If you have no idea what I'm talking about or if you haven't dabbled with this enough, do yourself a favor and experiment with it. Whether you go on a different blog or read another article or do a different podcast to get instructions of exactly how to do HDR, maybe that'll be an upcoming episode. Um, you know, Learn a little bit about it, experiment with it, and see if you like it. 
My gut reaction is that you're going to be really wowed at first and say, whoa, I had no idea this was possible. And you're going to start doing it more and more and you're going to get really bored with it. You're going to say, oh, this is this is pretty fake. I'd rather just take the shot and make it look, you know, uh, as good as I can in camera without doing, you know, these three shots and putting in all sorts of fancy software and algorithms. Just, just my hunch. But it's worth you trying because you don't know until you try. So that's like the most widely used application of bracketing today. It's exposure bracketing for HDR photography. It has a great use in the landscape, nature, travel, wildlife world. Well, not so much wildlife, but a lot of landscape stuff because landscapes don't move and you need to have your camera on a tripod, set bracketing, set your under even and overexposure. So three shots fire basically all at once, kind of like as fast as your drive motor will go. And then it saves it. And voila, you have all this data, you can drag and drop into Photoshop and with a couple clicks of a button, Photoshop or Lightroom will find its rendition, its version of those three photos that it thinks merges the lights and darks the best. And you know, you might like the results. So to answer the ultimate question, do you need to do bracketing? Probably not. I, I would I'd be happy that you listened to this episode you now know it. You can have a dinnertime conversation on your next photo adventure and be like, yeah, you know, I, I sometimes bracket. I, when I do HDR, I've experimented with it. I don't personally like it. I think it's a little bit too much effort. I'd rather just nail the shot in camera. And now you know. Now you have a little bit more knowledge about what it is so you don't read it as a setting in your camera's manual or hear about it in a podcast or read about it in an article and say, oh, gosh, I, I should really learn this one day. Now you know. Chances are I'd, I'd put my money on you not really using it all that much. But again, who, who am I to say you might fall in love with bracketing. You might fall in love with HDR. You might be a professional wedding photographer saying, wow, or maybe you're going to get into professional wedding photography and it gives you that knowledge that you have to get a little bit more data, a little bit more fail safe, um, a great safety net. If you don't nail the shot on that classic even exposure, you have an underexposed and overexposed in a very similar situation. And I should say, you know, I'm talking about nailing the shot on a tripod so the scene doesn't move. You can you can handhold it. Just make sure you're really, really still as if you're shooting like one twentieth of a second, you know, be as still as you possibly can. And with these fancy programs, even with HDR, they actually are able to align the photo pretty darn well. It's better if it's on a tripod, but you can still use, and more importantly, probably for your purposes here, is experiment with bracketing, experiment with HDR, you know, just right now, whether it's morning your time or afternoon your time, go outside and shoot some some bracketed shots, um, put them on the computer afterwards and just see what you like about them. You'll gradually learn if you start to do this more and more that there are certain scenes that lend themselves better to HDR. I'm not going to go into that now. I've already decided I'm going to do another episode here shortly on everything you need to know about HDR. So I think that will be helpful. It still has somewhat of a place in a very, very reserved manner in really great looking landscape photography. But you know, now you know, go out there, give it a shot. Let me know what you think. And thanks for listening as always. See you next time. Hear you next time. Talk to you next time. <laughs>